A spontaneous and unrehearsed interview. Hello and welcome to the 95th episode of Curiosityness. 95 episodes. Wow, We're almost to 100. Uh, it's crazy. Sorry. Give me a moment to reflect. Okay. Well, this episode I have on Carla Pisana. She is the author of a book called The World of Plymouth Plantation. So we're talking about Plymouth and the Pilgrims, but we're, we shouldn't really call them the Pilgrims, and you'll find out. So uh, this is a fun episode. I think it's really interesting. It's the story of, you know, Plymouth, the Mayflower, Thanksgiving-ish, sort of, you know, the story you've heard about how they come over and they land on the rock and all that kind of stuff, and the Native Americans are there, and Squanto, you know, it, it's that story, but we're going to dive deeper and learn about what it really is, you know? So that's what Carla shares with us in this episode. It's super fascinating. I really, really love learning this stuff. Like, we do talk about Squanto. We talk about what Thanksgiving actually was, uh, why the, quote, you know, pilgrims came over here, what they were really looking for when they, they made the journey to North America, how they missed where they were trying to go and accidentally landed up in Plymouth. But uh, it, it'll all come. You'll learn about all this. So uh, without further ado, let's get to Carla, the author of The World of Plymouth Plantation in episode 95 right now. Carla, hello. Welcome to Curiosityness. Thanks for being here. Hi, um, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. Cool. Well, excited to talk because what this is now... It's the 400th anniversary of all this pilgrim stuff, isn't it? Of the Mayflower, right. The Mayflower, okay. Yeah. Yeah, the Mayflower landed in December in 1620, so. 1620. 1620 sounds old, but 400 years ago, it doesn't even feel that long. (laughs) Isn't that weird? Right. That puts it in a certain perspective. That's true. Yeah. But, you know, there's not too much older than that that's associated with the United States. That's Um, true. You know, at least in terms of the way we tell the national history. Right, yeah. And that, so that, you're, what's that? Roanoke, right? 1587. That's the earliest. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. that's right. Yeah, because that's kind of something that is, because that kind of came, I think a lot of people think like Plymouth was the first kind of settlement, but it wasn't really. No. Well, 1587 Roanoke was an attempt, uh, 1586-87, but really the first one in what would become the 13 colonies of the United States is Jamestown in Virginia, 1607. Okay. We don't count Puerto Rico, (laughs) (laughs) which is a lot earlier. (laughs) What's the story of Puerto Rico? Well, Puerto Rico, you know, is now part of the United States, but it was originally a Spanish colony and it was settled shortly after Columbus. Oh. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's more like it's past 500 years. Right. (laughs) In fact, this is the 500th anniversary of the first slaves being taken to Puerto Rico. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. We'd like that's I've never, that was never taught to me. (laughs) Yeah. We used to take one of my classes. (laughs) Yeah. Right. (laughs) Right. Well, I'm so glad that's why you're around, you know, you're, yeah. you're sharing this stuff that it's just like, right. it's crazy. I, how would I even know to look into this stuff? You know, that's right. why it's... well, there was a lot of stuff about 1619 last year around slavery in um, Virginia. Mm-hmm. 
So there were a number of, event, of events associated with that. And, you know, whenever I was invited to those, I would always say, by the way, <laughs> right, yeah. Puerto Rico. Well, because some of my work has been on the Caribbean. So I okay. think more about that maybe than some other quote unquote U.S. historians would do. So. Okay. No, I see. And that kind of something that you focus on. Well, we should mention your your book. That's it's not officially out yet. It's coming out. No, they? actually, it's in the mail on its way to me right now. And I was really hoping it would come before this talk so I could hold it up. But it's not here yet. The, okay. the, it's due out on October 6th. Okay. Uh, which is less than a month away. Yes. But they always send the author advanced copies. Sure, so, you, be you know, as soon it. as they physically make copies, they put some in the mail to the author. So I got an email last week that they were sending it, but they haven't arrived yet. So. Cool. Well, congrats. That's exciting. And yeah, the book is called you. The World of Plymouth Plantation, correct? Right. Okay. And it, it's so it sort of focuses on more like who the pilgrims were as people and more of like their stories and day-to-day life. Is that right? Well, it really makes the case that Plymouth is a place that's connected to other places. Okay. We tend to picture Plymouth as isolated. If you think about, there's very famous images associated with Plymouth and the Mayflower, and it's always, you know, emphasizes isolation. They arrived in winter, and it was cold and icy and this sort of barren shore, and there were a few Native peoples, but otherwise they're all alone out there, the first, you know. I mean, that's kind of the image that we have. And I think a lot of, you know, in emphasizing the suffering and the hardship, that image of isolation has gotten emphasized. And it's not untrue, but in fact, you couldn't have Plymouth Plantation if it wasn't connected to all kinds of other places from the very beginning and throughout its history. So I'm actually thinking about those kinds of connections. And some of them have to do with very basic material things like, you know, where do you get your clothing? Right, sure. <laughs> you couldn't go. You couldn't get very far without having connections to other places. Right. So, yeah. so it does get into kind of everyday life issues, but it gets into a variety of of aspects. So, okay, man, very cool. Yeah, I'm excited to do it. So, can we just kind of go through, I guess, the story a little bit of like, so why did why did they initially want to go okay, to like America? Basically, who they were. Yes. Yeah. So, well. There's a famous narrative of their history, which was written by one of them, a man by the name of William Bradford, who was frequently their governor. Right. Um, and he wrote a little later in his life, he wrote the story as he wanted it to be remembered. And that has become the narrative that is written about Plymouth when people write books or whatever. So um, it's, you know, it's as good a place to start as any, although it is just one version of the story. So the way he tells it is the Protestant Reformation in England was a great thing, but it was incomplete. And a small group of Christians in Nottinghamshire decided that it, because it was incomplete, they needed to Um, ignore what the established legal national church, the Church of England, was doing and do basically what they thought was right. And they did that for a short while, and then they decided they needed to leave. Mm -hmm. They needed to go to the Netherlands in order to, to freely practice their religion. And they have a kind of harrowing escape story, um, 
which he narrates as the as the church tries to get out of England and they have various difficulties and finally they all end up in Amsterdam and then from there they decide they're going to locate in Leiden and so they establish a church in Leiden uh, which is led by their pastor, who's a man by the name of John Robinson, who's actually a quite well-educated, highly regarded minister. And he leads their little church uh, until some of them decide that they want to leave the Netherlands and go now to the American colonies, which are beginning to be developed by England. And okay. so... They can't really go back to England with their religious views, but they think they can go. They get a deal where they can basically go to a colony. So they're, the only one that exists at that time in North America is Virginia. Mm -hmm. But it has an enormous land grant that goes all the way up to like Delaware, like the southern you know, part of Pennsylvania. Uh -huh. And so they're trying to go to what they think of as North Virginia. Right. And they miss it. They end up, you know, on Cape Cod, basically. Now, there's some controversy about why they miss it. Some people say, you know, it was a conspiracy by the captain or, you know, so, I mean, there's some crazy stories. But I think, in fact, it's just not that well known how to navigate to this area. And sure, it's not yeah. that easy to do in a sailing ship in 1620. Um, and they arrive very late in December. Mm. And it's dangerous to try to sail. It's easier to sail north than it is to sail south. Oh. Plus, they have to go around Cape Cod. So they decide they're just going to stay where they are and not try to get to Virginia mm -hmm. in you know, January or whatever it would have been by then. So yeah. they stay in um, New England where they have no permission to be. They basically had a deal with the Virginia company that they could go to Virginia, but they're in New England and there's a there's a group of of English elites who sort of think they own New England. Okay. <laughs> Obviously the native people who live, live there don't agree, but those would have been the people they should have approached if they had thought that's where they were going. So that's one thing they have to end up sorting out. But when they arrive, they realize that they have no basis for being where they are. And they decide that they have to come up with some basic agreement about how they're going to govern themselves, which mm -hmm. is what we now remember as the Mayflower Compact. Right. Sure. Document that basically says, here we are, not where we meant to be. <laughs> we agree that this is how we're going to manage our affairs. You okay. know, basically. So all the men who are on the Mayflower, except I can't remember if the servants actually sign it. No one would expect it to matter whether adult male servants signed or not. But the men who are at least the heads of households sign it. Mm -hmm. And uh, that uh, becomes a famous document later in American history. Right. So they... They kind of tool around the area for a while, little exploratory, you know, visits onto shore. And then they finally come ashore, find an old abandoned native village site, start building there. And mm -hmm. they spend the winter, you know, under in dreadful conditions, living in like little shacks that they've been able to throw up. Mm -hmm. About half of them die. Oof. Yeah, there's like 100 people and 50 of them, you know, die. So um, the ship's crew has to stay with them through the winter because it can't go anywhere at the time. 
It's yeah. some of its crew are ill. Some of them have died. They need to kind of recover enough to sail home. Uh-huh. Um, so at the end of, you know, in the spring, they finally are able to leave and they leave this just few people here. And it's only when the, when the ship gets back to England that anybody knows where they are, which is, oh. you know, kind of <laughs> interesting to think yeah, about. It could have been. Right. Um, so they make contact with local native peoples. They find out that the village is abandoned because there was a terrible epidemic a few years beforehand that wiped out a lot of people and changed the kind of composition of the, you know, native communities in that area and where people were, what land people were using, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And they make a, you know, they make an alliance basically with a local native leader and they begin their effort at setting up a settlement, which they call Plymouth Plantation. Okay. Um, they're joined over the next few years by more shiploads with more people in them. And they eventually, you know, the population comes back and then exceeds a hundred and gradually grows. Um, a lot of the people who went were already in family units. Mm-hmm. Unlike like the people who go to Virginia, there are, there are women as well as men in the initial voyage. And so they're actually, babies are being born and, you know, the, the population is growing also through, through the fact of, you know, the family formation. And um, so, you know, they gradually become a small, first one little town and then a couple of other little towns are founded around it as their population grows enough. Okay. Uh, what really changes the situation in that region is that in 1630, a huge number of people start migrating into what will become Massachusetts Bay Colony. Oh. So north of Plymouth, which is on Cape Cod, you know, up by what's today Boston and Salem, huge numbers of of people from England start pouring in. And that okay. and some of those will overflow into the Plymouth Plantation area and add to that population. Um, but then, you know, the whole landscape changes with this big huge the 20,000 people migrate into New England in a 10-year period starting in 1630. And so that really changes the dynamic. So it's really only those first 10 years that they're sort of there more or less on their own. Okay. They last as a separate entity with, you know, their own little uh, jurisdiction until the 1680s when they get, they basically get canceled. <laughs> <laughs> canceled. And after 1692, they're part of Massachusetts Bay Colony. And and even today, they're, mm-hmm. st- they're, a, they're a county within the state of Massachusetts. But for a period, they had been their own little entity. Okay, yeah, because this is, you mentioned this, but I'm just a little, I'm unclear on how it works. So they they were going to go to Virginia. They missed it. They ended up, you know, where Plymouth is. Um, But, and so that really didn't have like any, like England didn't really have jurisdiction over that, or did they? (laughs) Well, okay. Uh, Spain says everything in both Americas except for Brazil belongs to Spain. Okay. So theoretically, the Spanish, quote unquote, discovered among the Europeans the Americas, and they claim it all. The English and others, the French, the Dutch, are starting to make inroads into areas that the Spanish haven't actually occupied. 
Okay. So that and that's tricky because Spain is a very powerful country at this time. So you don't just if you're the English monarch, you don't just want to say we know you say it's yours, but we don't care. You want to be a little more respectful, diplomatic, or quiet, or you know. So so there's a slow move toward you know, taking land within the Americas. So it takes a long time before the Spanish government actually acknowledges that these other Europeans have any right to be in the Americas. Okay. Which doesn't stop the English from saying Virginia belongs to us. You know, Virginia, which is a massive colony in their original thinking, belongs to us. New England belongs to us. You know, at the same time, the Swedes are there, the Dutch are there, the French are there. Like, there's no, you know, there's no saying who it would have ended up in the hands of. Mm -hmm. But it's the very beginnings of a slow, long process in which England, later Britain, would basically take everything north of Florida south of Nova, Nova Scotia and basically claim it all and occupy it all. But that takes, you know, 150 years or whatever. So. Right. Okay. I see. Okay. And then, so just the, the uh, Mayflower compact was just kind of their way of just trying to create some, something for right. them as a. Well, only about half the people who are on the Mayflower are connected to the Leiden church. Oh. The other half are other people who were recruited by investors and others from England. Mm. So they're not a kind of organized community in a sense. They're people who were sort of thrown together by this desire to go. If they had gone to Virginia, they had a, a kind of government, govern, you know, how would we be governed sort of right. deal with Virginia. Sure. But since they didn't end up in Virginia, they say, well, like, now what are we going to do? We don't have any, we have no permission to be here. We don't have any basis to organize ourselves into any kind of an entity. So they just signed this agreement that basically says, you know, we're going to work together to make this happen. And, you know, people are not going to strike out on their own and, you know, whatever. And they think that that's a temporary, like a stopgap measure. They try to get a charter from the king they try to get permission to be there and they never oh. really succeed they get these noble lords who are in, organizing this new england company to give them a patent which allows them to own land if you assume that these elite englishmen own the land and can <laughs> give them the right to it right but they never get anything saying you're allowed to have a government you're you know you can set this up here. England will acknowledge you as a, as a separate entity. They never get that. Other places in New England, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, those places get that kind of permission either right away or eventually. But Plymouth never does. And they huh. stop trying, interestingly, eventually. they just What happens is the region fills up and the other colonies basically accept that they're there and don't mess with them. And that sort of seems like good enough. Like, okay. You know, until, of course, the king looks at them and says, oh, wait, you know, you don't even have a charter I have to take away if I want to. <laughs> absorb you into a larger entity. So Jeez. in that regard, it's like they're not as safe as they could have been. Mm -hmm. 
if they had had their own charter, they might have stayed as an independent colony. But it, because they didn't, they just got absorbed into Massachusetts. So, okay. but it's interesting when um, Bradford is narrating this early history in his of Plymouth Plantation, which is this very famous document. He um, he doesn't even tell about the Mayflower Compact. Really, at first, like he just skips over that, and then when he gets like. Ten years later, the compact has become more important because they haven't gotten anything else. Sure. And so when he starts the second book of his big manuscript, he says, you know, before I tell what's happened since, you know, in, in recent times, I need to back up <laughs> and tell about this civil combination this this legal agreement that we made at that start and he backs his story up wow. describes the signing gives the tax and that's because it's taken on a great deal more significance because they're basically cobbling together that the patent you know whatever other things they have agreements with local natives whatever they have to sort of justify where they are okay and when they thought they'd get a charter they didn't need to sort of you know, pull this and that together. So it's it's quite interesting that it becomes, to them, it becomes more important because they're in a position of weakness. It then becomes much more important in the early United States because it's identified as an early democratic document. I would say misidentified as an early democratic document, but but from the point of view of the early United States, that's interesting to them. They want to say, oh, look, these people are self-governing. You know, let's let's emphasize that because we're now self-governing and this is part of our tradition. And right. So it becomes it becomes named the Mayflower Compact <laughs> and it becomes a big deal only in the 19th century. So, oh. yeah, they never even actually say the name Mayflower, which in any of the original sources, which is super fascinating, given that we now have like Mayflower Compact, Mayflower Descendants, Mayflower 400th Anniversary. Yeah. So where yeah, did that come like from? Not, I mean, it's a very common name for a ship, and they don't, you know. Oh. They're like, <laughs> in that time, you know. Right. There's lots of Mayflowers sailing around, and to them it didn't <laughs> seem particularly significant. It wasn't you know? a big deal. Wow. That's yeah, amazing. so, I mean, it's how things become symbolic, you know, over sure. time. Interesting. So, anyway. So what do you mean when it was kind of uh, misidentified as a democratic Document. Well, they're trying to when they when they sign that document, I should probably grab the the text of it. But when they sign that document, they're thinking about um, how are we going to organize ourselves? But they're not thinking we need to be sure everybody gets a voice. You know, it's not a democratic impulse. It's a like, how are we going to control this out of control situation? Sure. So it's almost. In a way, it's almost the opposite of, yeah, right. you know, let's all vote on it and see what we, you know. And some people have made a lot of the fact that it's a split group between the, between the church members and the others. And that, you know, presuming there's tensions there between the two and therefore, like all the church members could get along fine. But then they have all these extra people who might go off on their own or have their own ideas. And therefore, you know, maybe they're just trying to corral everybody under the authority of the leaders in the church side, on the church side. Right. So, okay. That makes sense. But. So, so was it like, um, 
did they really like, at least the people who are part of the church, was that their motivation to, was that truly like their motivation to go to North America was, you know, for like religious liberty? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> I mean, basically, if you think about religious freedom as the motivation, there's really two problems with that. One is when we say religious freedom, we don't mean what they were doing. We oh. think of freedom of religion, like people being free to have, you know, their choice, what you, right. which they didn't care about. They only cared about their own personal choice. Sure. So it's like, I, you know, I want to be free to do what's right, i.e. what I think is the way it should be done. They're not thinking as an abstract principle that people should be allowed to follow their own conscience. Mm -hmm. That's a slightly later idea. Um, And that's the idea that in the early United States they want to support is that it was about freedom of religion. But the other thing is, when they went to the Netherlands, they were as free as they could be religiously. Oh. So, I mean, because the Netherlands was a, (laughs) the Netherlands during this period is a fascinating place, but it's a, it's a, a group of different provinces that haven't, they're rebelling against the Spanish monarchy, the Habsburgs, who who run Spain, but also own a whole, you know, Belgium and the Netherlands and a whole area in, in Central Europe. Right. And they've been in revolt against the Spanish for decades by the time the people from the church arrived to live in Leiden. And there's a truce, there's a 12-year truce in this long war for independence that they come during. So the church is established during this truce. But for a long time, this has been, the Netherlands has been a place that is a Protestant haven where English people who have unconventional Protestant views can go. So lots of Protestant books, when the Protestant Reformation is first happening in England, and it's not really clear how far it's going to go or what the king is going to say about it. Books are published in the Netherlands in English in support of a more Protestant outcome to what's going on in England because there are English expat communities there that are basically supportive of a more radical reformation. So there's a long history of people who find the whatever's going on in England uncomfortable and they go to the Netherlands. So the fact that they do that it's not at all surprising except that they're a small not very wealthy church and it's a little tricky to do but it's not, you know, it's not unprecedented. Mm-hmm. There are other English churches there when they arrive. Okay. Um but and there they're allowed to do whatever they want. They're, they the the Dutch allow them to practice the way they want to practice. Okay. Um, and England and they they actually establish a printing press for a while in their little community, and it is printing things that are opposed to the religious policies in England in English, and then they're getting smuggled into England, and the oh. government in England comes to the Dutch government and says, you know, you have to like make them stop. You have to send them home. You have to, you know, we need to punish them. And the the press is closed down, but they're not punished. Hmm. So, you know, the Dutch government is willing to, to protect them and support them to some extent. So they're fine in the Netherlands in terms of practicing their religion. They have other problems like 
they don't all speak Dutch. All right. They don't have very much money. They find it difficult to get jobs. You know, so they have all the immigrant problems. You know, they, they sold their property and gave up a lot when they moved. Mm-hmm. And now here they are in this new community where it's difficult to make a start. So okay. they are leaving for other reasons, not religious reasons. Okay. Um, one, one source actually says they're worried, or, and some speculation by scholars has been that they're worried with the truce ending, that the war is going to resume, mm. and they don't want to be in the middle of that. Right. And in fact, it does end, and the war does resume, and eventually, like almost 30 years later, the um, Dutch finally get their independence and create... A, a, you know, an independent government that's not under the Habsburg monarchy. But, you know, there's there's fighting <laughs> that happens before that. So, sure, yeah. you know, it would be a reason not to be there. Okay. So, so okay. So that they were like, we got to, it's not great here. We got to go somewhere where we can, you know, practice our religion and it's got to kind of do all these check boxes. So kind of, what they saw their best option right. was to go to North America. Right. They can't go back to England. Yeah. It's clear with their religious views at that time. A few years later, it would be okay, but at that time, it's not okay. So um, they then, when they first go to the Netherlands, they don't really have the option of America. But when they decide they are going to go to America, that option has now opened up. So there is the possibility you're under the English government, but you're not under the really strictly regulated church. Right. So it seems to them perfect. Like it's going to be English language under the English government, um, but not, they're not going to interfere with what we are going to do religiously. So it kind of combines the best of staying in England with the best of staying in the Netherlands. Right. Okay. Cause so they choose to go. Yeah. Well, and cause there's, or there's... some of them do about half the church goes. Okay. Right. Good point. Not everybody. And the Not other half stays in the Netherlands. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause that's, I don't know. You kind of think of it as them just leaving England, but they still think of themselves as English and you know, are they they're going to go to Virginia and still be kind of under you know, right. English. Right. And actually, when they're in New England, they go way out of their way to say, we are here as the representatives of the King of England. We are loyal subjects to James oh. the first. And, wow. You know, which is really interesting, given that they've been writing these critical pamphlets and having them tossed into England to criticize yeah. the church and the king. And also because they laugh, you know, but they present, especially whenever they're talking to Native Americans or when they're talking to uh, other Europeans, they're always presenting themselves as loyal subjects and representatives. And, you know, so it's, it's fascinating, I think. Yeah. Do you have any like idea of why they would still be so loyal to the King of England? Well, I think one thing is you don't want to be in America not tied to something. Mm. I mean, you know, this is a region that has lots of different powerful groups in it, many of them native, but also now more and more Europeans. And there's lots of vying for 
position and et cetera. So I think having somebody behind you, having someone in Europe who's saying, you know, these are our people and we might do something to protect them, even though they never actually do much to protect (laughs) English people in the Americas in the 17th century. You know, the idea that somebody, you have some kind of backing, I think is attractive to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I could understand that. Right. Man, okay. And then so... All the positives of that connection without the negatives. (laughs) Yeah, right. To them, it's a (laughs) win-win. Right. Um, okay. And then, so I'm, I'm curious about the kind of the first, uh, Native American interactions and that they actually, they do sign a kind of a peace treaty with the local tribe. Yeah. Well, the very first interactions are, they, they are aware that there are people in the general area and they, they hear them sometimes they see them at a distance. So there's like this whole series of like, we know they're out there. They're not coming in, you know, sort of weird kind of posturing sort of interactions. Yeah. And then a man walks into the, into their little village and speaks to them in English. Oh, and this is a man named Samoset who had lived further up the coast where European fishermen have been coming for a long time. And he learned a little bit of English. Wow. So he comes in and, and talks to them briefly and then promises that he'll bring somebody else whose English is better. Mm-hmm. And by this time, this, you know, shortly after this, he comes back with a man that we remember as Squanto. Right. He's actually okay. in the ref- in the records more with a different version of his name, which is to Squantum. But he is quite, he has quite good English uh, because he was kidnapped by an Englishman um, six years before and carried along with other people to um, be sold as a slave in Spain. Yikes. And yeah, so he has this fascinating story of having been kidnapped. They trick them onto a ship, they kidnap them, they take them to Spain, they go to sell them. And then um, for at least some of these men, they come um, to the attention of some Dominican friars who realize these are natives of the Americas and natives of the Americas are vassals of the king and cannot be enslaved. And so they actually get them out of being sold as slaves and take them into their community. And, you know, there is a scholar who's working on this right now and trying to track all this and figure out everything. And I don't know how much we know about the Spanish interlude, but he might give us more information eventually. But he eventually makes his way back to England, up to England. And then from England, he gets on multiple voyages going toward America (laughs) and eventually is able to get back home. Okay, But, you know, he goes because there's lots of fishing in the North Atlantic mm-hmm. that comes out of Europe and, and seasonally ships go into the Newfoundland fisheries up in that area where, you know, cod fisheries and they go in the warmer months and they do all this fishing and they dry the fish and then they bring it back to sell in Europe. And so he, he can get only so far. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Until finally he's able to get into, you know, more into the region and then he's able to make his way down. And he discovers that his home village is gone, oh, that man. this is actually the site where this epidemic, 
you know, killed many people and others had dispersed by the time he returns. And so he actually finds that this Plymouth is, is established at the place where he had lived and oh. where he, he had been kidnapped from. So, wow, that'd be a shocker. Yeah. So it's really, so he's, he's a super interesting character because he has good English. He can speak also to the local native peoples who either speak the same language he did or a different, you know, a different variation on it, but he doesn't actually have his own community. So he, he kind of becomes more identified with Plymouth and more of an agent of Plymouth and works with them very closely. He only lives for a couple of years oh. after this, but he is kind of their representative and their advisor uh, the records are super interesting, though, because it's quite clear he's playing his own game. Like, he's got his own ideas about what he wants to accomplish. And, you know, so occasionally the the um, Plymouth people are upset because he's representing things in a certain way that they, you know, <laughs> they would rather he not. Or, sure. you know, he's maybe trying to, you know gain his own power in the situation and so he's just he's a really fascinating character who's you know trying probably you know trying to build back up some kind of a local standing for himself mm, right that's you know that's facilitated by this fact that he can speak english but close by there is a, a wampanoag community that um, he helps them get con into contact with. And with that community, then a treaty is negotiated. They call the, in the records, they call the leader of that community Massasoit, but actually that name just means leader. Oh. <laughs> so it's like a problem of translation. Yeah. Um, so in all their records, they're always referring to him basically as leader. Right. <laughs> um, uh, but he's the he's the man who leads the community that they then create this alliance with and they have a, a an agreement that um you know cross-cultural negotiations in various languages with an interpreter of questionable <laughs> motives you know who knows what both sides thought <laughs> we yeah. know what the english document says but you know, what right. the native people thought they were getting into might be something slightly different. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. What would they, man, what would, they're so lucky that that whole Squanto had that crazy story and came back because what would they have done without an Yeah, they, like I mean, they treat him as, as if he was sent by God. Um, and then he, te he, he teaches them how the natives plant corn mm -hmm. using, um, um, corn and beans and you know there's like a combination planting thing corns bean and squash that if you use these if you plant these plants together um you don't deplete the soil and you, you know you put a you dig a hole you put a piece of fish in then you plant these various things and the, the corn stalk becomes what the with the vines trail itself up and, you know, there's a whole thing he teaches them, which they, which they say they're very grateful for, but then they end up not really using, oh, <laughs> like really? They, can't, they can't get out of the whole idea of like, we make rows, you know, <laughs> we're oh, right. we have yeah. to plant things in like little patches and rows and stuff. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, early writers about Plymouth, once it, I mean, there's, there's a set of very important writings that are produced by the people who were there. Mm -hmm. And then 
later, those writings are discovered by um, people who are from the area in the later colonial period and the revolutionary era, and they start retelling these stories to create Plymouth as an important origin moment. And one of the stories they really like is is the story of Squanto and the mm-hmm. planting of the corn and the yeah, you know, well, that's the, a, the, the English are very conscious that he's been abused by English people, and they go on about the man who kidnapped him, and you know they're very negative about that, and they they treat Squanto as if he's forgiven them oh, for okay. <laughs> for what their countrymen did, you know. So they're very aware that this was not this was badly handled, and they try to distance themselves from that mm. from that individual they meet a woman whose whose three sons were all kidnapped at the same time who's now an old woman who's lost all her children and and she's very upset and she she thinks somehow telling them might help but of course they have no idea but they they're very careful to tell her that they're they're very sorry they would never do such a thing they think it's it's awful as well you know so they they try to create some they don't want the local people thinking this is what english people do yeah right i can imagine <laughs> not good for their for the local reputation <laughs> yeah exactly but it's good to hear because i mean i had i learned the story of squanto in grade school you know right. and the, he helped them plant corn so it's nice to hear that that's actually true but they they leave out the part that you know they they kidnapped him and put him into slavery and stuff like that right. you know <laughs> right. so. yeah well almost everything in history has a more complicated story than the simple one we like to to emphasize so sure right yeah i guess i was just a a dumb second grader at the time well it's 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 fascinating to me that that is the story of colonial america that children learn you know i mean that that's that narrative was was carefully prepared mm-hmm. in the 19th century by New Englanders to be the origin story. Right, you yeah. Know? And they were fighting with Virginians who had a different version of the origin right. story, which they wanted to have be the more prominent one. So, Yeah, that's a good point. They would want their story. Like, well, their story was... <laughs> Their story was a little bit more complicated in that it was um, Pocahontas was a princess Mm. and she married an elite Englishman, John Smith, and created a kind of English native aristocracy that so that so that there was some way in which the Virginia elite was um, descended from these elite individuals. And there's a, there's a big migration. Well, it's not actually as big as they like to make a town, but there is a migration in the 1640s and 1650s of people who fought in the English Civil Wars on the side of Charles I. And after he loses and gets his head cut off, some of the some of his soldiers come, some of his officers come and live in Virginia. And so these are often gentlemen or younger sons of, of you know, higher elite individual families. And um, so the Virginians pick up that image, too. And that those people are referred to as cavaliers. 
Hmm. So this idea that there were like these Virginia Cavaliers who were elite. So there's a kind of vaguely princess who becomes a Christian and marries into the Virginia and then these elite men who are there and the kind of combination of them is pulled together to be seen as the basis of basically the Virginia planter class. Oh, okay. So if you watch the movie Gone with the Wind, Mm -hmm. they actually refer to the Cavaliers and to this romantic vision of Virginia as this, um, upper class uh, society that's that's um, very elegant and you know very romantic and so this this image of the south as having these kind of elite origins that are in some way admirable you know was the Virginia version and then the New England version was like suffering sacrifice piety you know hard work etc so in the end uh the new englanders won right so it was really just them trying to craft the story that they wanted to share right right and you know plymouth is first in new england more or less i mean there were other english people there but in terms of settlements um virginia was first and i mean um Plymouth was first. And also Plymouth has the advantage of never having killed any witches, never. (laughs) There's there's some kind of like downsides to the regional history that Virginia doesn't participate in. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that that Plymouth doesn't participate in. So, I mean, the Plymouth people, the people who lived in Plymouth wanted to promote Plymouth, obviously, like locals who were often descended from the first people. They wanted to promote Plymouth, but also I think as a, as a kind of regional story, like if you, you know, in the 19th century ideas like, you know, killing witches and these, these sort of negative stories about Massachusetts and what does it mean to be, you know, um, um, person from that region, you know, the Scarlet Letter, these ideas about mm-hmm. hypocrisy, these negative images of religion. So if Massachusetts is going that way in terms of its sort of PR, <laughs> you know, that's right. fairly negative. So I think um, Plymouth, partly because it's small and out of those main trends that were going those bigger more famous trends that were going on seems like a really great place to you know to put this the story of sacrifice and hard work and you know and that's when all those those paintings of landing in the winter and you know having a first thanksgiving and you know all those images often wearing very you know dull colors and you know these sort of i mean these are not these are not accurate representations but they're kind of the romantic version of you know pious hard-working self-sacrificing you know first arrivals is sort of the way that image gets created right okay yeah so what did, did they because i you know i think of a pilgrim i think of like you know they're wearing black and white they got a big buckle on is that is that real or is that totally fake? that's not real okay 
That was just made up because it was. They nice dress just like everybody. I mean, there is one group in colonial American history that eventually goes for kind of somber colors, which are the Quakers, the members of the Society of Friends, particularly in Philadelphia area, particularly in the 18th century. And I think that idea that you have to wear somber colors becomes a kind of image of piety in a kind of vague cultural way that then gets read onto these other groups. I see. Okay. But it's not actually, you know, based on anything. In fact, one of the chapters in my book, uh, all my, all the chapters in my book start off with a little short story of some sort drawn from some original record. And one of my chapters in my book is about a man who steals red stockings Oh, out of a window where they were drying on the windowsill in Boston. He goes to visit Boston and he sees these stockings and he steals them and he brings them back to Plymouth and he puts them on and he gets called into court. Not because he's wearing red, but because all his neighbors know he doesn't have red stocking. (laughs) No, where did he get those stockings? They know his wardrobe. (laughs) Well, because all your clothes have to come from England. Yeah, like, sure. You don't have very many clothes. The right. clothes you have, everybody knows. If you get new clothes, people know. Yeah. So the fact that he suddenly shows up with red stockings is super suspicious. And the grand jury actually <laughs> presents him for having red stockings. Wow. And they call him in and he confesses, well, I found him on somebody's windowsill and brought him back from Boston. And they send him back to Boston and say, you have to take these back <laughs> and tell them that you stole them. Okay, but you know the point there is it's not the red that's the problem, except that they're noticeable Mm -hmm. as compared to the stockings he actually owned. (laughs) Right? Yeah, man, that's funny. That's crazy. (laughs) Yeah. So I mean, I try to use little stories like that to get into whatever the topic is, and that the topic of that is basically about clothing and the need to import it, and they can't make it locally, and Mm -hmm. therefore, how do they get it? And Right. Yeah. So, so they, they, were, they import cloth or already made things. Okay. Yeah. So they would rely on, you know, England or other places to import stuff that they couldn't get. So they were. Right. Okay. Right. Were they doing Shift, kind of a um, lot of trading and that kind of stuff? Oh, yeah. Ship, uh, ship comes, except for one year in the early period, a ship comes every year. Mm-hmm. I mean, they arrive with a huge part of the, of the early Plymouth story is they arrive with an enormous debt. Because they can't afford to buy, you know, everything they need to come. And they can't afford to rent a ship and the captain and the crew and stuff. So they get backers in England who agree to back their voyage in exchange for being repaid. So the minute they land, they have a debt that they have to pay off. And the problem is it's hard to come up with something in New England, especially in December, (laughs) that you can send back that will help to pay off the debt. So they spend a long, they spend decades indebted to these investors and trying to gather up enough. So the investors will then send shoes or clothes or whatever Mm -hmm. because they know they need them, but then the debt keeps going up. Right. Yeah. They can't they can't seem to get out of it for a long time because um the main thing they they find that they can export is yeah. is um 
animal skins, furs, pelts, mm, you know, sure. beaver pelts. So they immediately try to set up a trade with the local native peoples in order to get these items which they can then load on ships and send back but then there's also the problem of transatlantic transportation on small wooden ships in the early 17th century which is not a very sure thing so occasionally like one of their shipments gets ruined in a shipwreck another couple of them get taken by pirates you know so they just have a lot of different pirates or privateers they just have a lot of different mishaps once the the Shipment arrives in London during uh, epidemic. There's it's like a plague mm-hmm. year, and everybody's sick, and basically business is closed down. So their shipment just sits there and doesn't get sold, and you oh, know, man. so they, they have various difficulties. They also think they're getting cheated by the people that are keeping the book, and you know, I mean, there's all kinds, of, and they admit right. they're really bad at keeping their books. So they don't, you know, they when it comes down to it, they don't really know. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. It's kind of a mess. It takes until 1646 for them to be into, you know, free of the dead. Jeez. So, yeah. That's 26 years. That's a long yeah. time. So, <laughs> Man. yeah. I no well, idea. it's not, you know, early colonies are not big money makers. Sure. I mean, anybody who invests in establishing an English outpost in the Americas loses money. Mm hmm. You know, it just doesn't. I mean, William Penn ends up in debtor's prison. You know, it's just not lucrative. Right. So, you know, I mean, the Spanish make a lot of money because they find mines, gold and silver mines, which Mm -hmm. they then mine. And that ends up being a huge source of wealth for them Mm -hmm. for, you know, a century or more after after they take over what's today Mexico and Peru, which is where the two biggest mines are. But, you know, that's not in the first 10 minutes. <laughs> right, yeah. It takes a while. It takes to get a that little going. while. You know, a lot of money is put out to go there and to find these things. And, you know, and the, and the English hope they'll find mines as well, but okay. So is yeah. that kind of like, a, like these investors, are they kind of hoping that something like that will happen? Well... Yeah, they're hoping, I mean, what's happened in Virginia by the time we're talking about um, is that they've discovered tobacco, Okay, which is another way to make money, which is a crop that will grow in a colony that doesn't grow, or at least not well, in England, and for which there's a demand. Right. So things like cotton tobacco, sugar, um, these kinds of things will eventually be exported. There's also some local, I mean, tobacco is a, is an American plant originally. Oh, there's other things like, you know, um, the cocoa plant, the basis of chocolate is also American. So there's some uh, local things that eventually get, you know, pulled into a kind of Atlantic exchange that's lucrative for people who can control it. And then there's things that are already grown in other places like sugar, but they, but the environment in the Americas is good for cultivating. And so there's big sugar plantations eventually in Brazil and in the Caribbean in particular that are hugely profitable. 
But so that becomes a different model, that agricultural exploitation is a different model than the extraction mm-hmm. model. But yeah, the, the, the biggest way to wealth initially and one that everybody thinks would be great if they could get in on it is mining. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's huge, huge amounts of especially silver come out mm-hmm. of the Americas okay. and it goes to Asia via the Manila Galleon trade that goes across the Pacific from Spanish America. And then it comes back to um, Europe. Well, but I mean, it finances wars. It changes the economy of Europe. It's, I wow. mean, it's in a world deal. historical sense, it's, it's enormously, it has an enormous impact. New England's, what New England has to offer is furs until those are depleted, which doesn't take long. The Dutch are going up the Hudson River and getting them that way. The French are coming in through Quebec and getting them that way. And the, and the, <laughs> the English in New England kind of get squeezed in the middle between those two, which have better access. So they, they work the local rivers in New England um, for a while, but eventually they there there's not enough trade in that area the the plymouth actually establishes fur trading outposts on various rivers because plymouth is not a great spot for getting furs oh. it doesn't have a major river coming into it where you can then you know meet native hunters coming down and you know so they go to the connecticut river and they go up to what's today maine to kennebec and they get then uh, the river there and they have they have trading posts there that are waiting basically for native hunters to come and trade with them so that they can then collect the furs, bring right, them back okay. to Plymouth, put them on ships, and send them to back to England. Yeah. So but then you know, other settlers come and then you can't you can't trade on the Connecticut River if Connecticut is a colony that somebody else is owning and telling right. you to stay out of. So Jeez. you know, eventually those fall apart for them. Yeah. Okay. And they and then they just but by then more or less there. The other thing in New England is there's two other things. One is fish. Okay. Which is already being you know extracted in big numbers further north. And the other thing is timber, huge forests. Oh, right. And um, you know, and these are quite um, they're quite impressive to Europeans because Europeans have basically deforested Europe by this time. You know, they're building wooden ships, they're building wooden houses, they're burning wood for fuel. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, to see enormous forests with really big trees in them and, you know, to them is just phenomenal. And so they, they start shipbuilding in the region pretty soon after Massachusetts is established. Um, eventually the King, um, Naval, you know, the naval authorities go through the forests of New England and mark certain trees as belonging to the king because they're a certain kind of pine that um, makes really a really good mast. If you have to make a very large ship, you need this. So that's another thing. And you know, and then there's other forest-based um, products like turpentine and you know things that you can produce that are also for naval stores are important that that new england has so new england will find a niche but it's not going to be a way to make yourself super wealthy right it's not like a sugar plantation in in jamaica in the 18th century Mm -hmm. you know it's going to be a more modest 
um, mercantile sure. undertaking. Right. So. Okay. And you, I think you kind of alluded to this before where you said that they kind of like ran out of furs because they over like hunted, but was that, I mean, to the native Americans there, were they able to kind of live in and let that ecosystem, you know, be, be there? <laughs> well, I mean, that, that's the problem. I think if Plymouth was, if Plymouth had been it, uh-huh. you know, native life would have been only moderately disrupted by things like disease and trade. Right. But once you have people trading, you know, coming in from every direction and trading and what happens is, I mean, a number of things happen. One is too many people mean they start, they start fighting over land. Mm -hmm. So there's not a war of any consequence until Massachusetts and Connecticut are founded. And then there's a, a, a major regional war because there's suddenly there's all this pressure on land and the native people start to push back more seriously. Sure. Right. Um, so there's, so that happens. But the other thing is everybody uses the same furs, same skins, et cetera. You know, everybody's hunting for the deer and the beaver and the otter, et cetera. And if, if, Various native communities are all trying to get in on that trade. Then you end up having wars among them over resource resources and access because they're all going to fight among themselves about, you know, who's going to be able to exploit this this connection to the Europeans. So it it has various problems, yeah. you know, in terms of wars with Europeans over land, but then also wars among natives over the resources, even as the resources are going down. Wow. So Native people start using more things that come from Europe. Mm, right, sure. They start, instead of taking their time to do the traditional ways of creating, say, like bowls and pots and stuff out of gourds and naturally, you know, instead of weaving baskets, instead of making things out of furs, etc., um, they start or, you know, deer skins or whatever, they start trading for cloth. And then, you know, then they make their clothes that way or in part that way, or they yeah. start trading for metal items so they can have a, a metal pot or, a, you know, so, so the kind of, these kinds of material changes sort of insinuate themselves into the environment at the same time that their ability to pursue their own, their older ways of doing things being undermined by other factors. Right. So it does. I mean, it's a long term disease can come in and wipe out a lot of people at once. But then the presence of this alternate communities, alternate economies that, you know, that has a has a longer term kind of insidious impact. So a lot of the native peoples that live in New England today basically um, lost their lands over time yeah. and you know some of the fights that are going on about like can these communities get recognized can they get tribal status can they have you know can they have their casino can they i mean these are all very much tied to the this history of you know these people have been there all along but 
mm-hmm. they recognized as being there. And you know, right, can yeah. you tell? So that so you know, the historians of these communities have to go through and try to document that yes, this this group that's been living here this whole time, even though the colonial authorities didn't recognize them anymore as a native community, were in effect, you know, the remnants of a much larger native community. So mm-hmm. Yeah, it has a huge long-term impact. And there was a famous book, oh man, this must be almost 50 years ago, called Changes in the Land by an environmental historian who showed how if you take all the beaver out of the New England landscape, it completely changes the physical landscape because of the ways beaver impact the landscape. You know, they build these dams, they, you know, they change the way the water flows, they do all these kind of, you know, so... That those kinds of effects are, you know, also have have a lot of uh, long term consequences that mm-hmm. aren't intentional or thought through or even necessarily recognized. But if you, you know, if you're trained to do that kind of historical research, you can see them. Yeah. So. Well, it's interesting to think too because I, the the perspective I have is that you know the the English just came over and you know. They just started hunting and took all the beavers, you know, and then they were they were over over hunted and they were gone or whatever. But um, it makes sense that you know the native different native communities there would also start. They would maybe hunt more to then trade for other things and stuff, and then they would right. start to you know clash against each other too. So it was just everybody who just had to get these resources. Right. In at least in Plymouth, the the. Plymouth residents themselves are not hunting. Oh, okay. They're trading. I mean, they do bring guns. One of my chapters is about guns. But um, they, and they do kill um, birds in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the guns they bring are what they call fowling pieces. Um, but they don't actually go out and, ca- they don't have the skills. They don't have the, they don't go out and take the beaver themselves. Right. They, those are brought um, in trade. Yeah. So. I see. So you mentioned birds. Did they get turkey? Uh, <laughs> I, I heard years ago that somebody did a big, um, ar- you know, these archaeological digs at Plymouth and they've never found a turkey bone. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, turkeys, turkeys would have been there wild turkeys. They'd be nothing like what we picture. Yeah, oh, really? because those have been so modified. I mean, a, a modern turkey has a huge breast bone because it's been modified, you know, it's been bred to, you know, it, um, a turkey in the wild is a scrawny. Oh, <laughs> sure, right. A, you couldn't feed the whole family for Thanksgiving on one turkey. Right. Um, yeah, the meal that, they, that, that they're referring to when they talk about the first Thanksgiving was nothing like what we picture. So... <laughs> They didn't yeah. have, I mean, uh, those are regional foods of 19th century New England, is what we picture as okay. Thanksgiving, you know, um, not the foods that they would have eaten in Plymouth in 1620. The only thing we know, it wasn't a meal, it was sort of more of a harvest celebration, multi-day harvest celebration, more like what you would do in an English village. Only 90 Wampanoag warriors came and brought deer and so um they had a lot of venison Mm -hmm. the the meat they favor in new england and and really in all the north american colonies in the early years is pork really 
Oh, yeah, they like pigs because <laughs> pigs are mean. <laughs> and, and, you know, pigs, you can turn them loose and they will fend for themselves. I mean, there were wolves in New England, so you could lose them to wolves. But, uh-huh. you know, in general, they can look after themselves. And there's uh-huh. lots of records from New England in the 17th century of Native communities fighting with English communities about semi-feral pigs that are coming and rooting up native crops because English are not pinning them in. They're just letting them go and, you know, branding them and letting them go. And then they're going and tearing up, uh, you know, other people's corn and beans and squash and, you know, so. Right. Yeah. They ate a lot of pork. Okay. Bacon's good, I guess. (laughs) Everyone loves bacon. Okay, so but there were so there were um, Native Americans. You said from the, the Wampanoag tribe at at the, the yeah. I just sort read of. something written by a Native scholar who actually points out that they're they have this harvest. It's their first, you know, the end of their first year there, and they they have actually successfully planted some things and they harvest it, and they decide they're going to have a little celebration because they've been, you know, it's been they've been dealing with a lot of dearth, and so they're going to have this celebration and they do a little. Um, Marshall display where they with the they all come out beating the drum and they shoot off all their guns and stuff and so the scholar actually says if this was an intimidation tactic to the local native tribes then the fact that ninety warriors show up right yeah <laughs> was you know you could read that as in a very different way than if um, you know it was just like come to our party sort of thing yeah right. <laughs> But they did stay and partake and they did bring deer, which they were good at hunting and Mm -hmm. the English, not so much. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, and there's lots of seafood, of course, in the area. So that, I mean, seasonally available. So that there was that as well. Right. Yeah. They could harvest at certain times. Cool. So. Man, well, I love hearing about this stuff, Carla. I'm so glad you're you're. Thank you for coming on and sharing this stuff. It's it's so interesting sure. to me. I love it. Um, I mean, is there anything you know? We'll kind of wrap it up a bit, but is there anything that you want to, you know, share or people you want people to think about the change their perspective on the pilgrims or anything like that? Well, you'll notice I've never used the word pilgrim. It's it's all me using it. Yeah. Why so that? that's one thing I I actually they don't call themselves that. Okay. Um, they refer to themselves that way metaphorically, but what they mean twice in the early records. But what they mean is that they're wanderers. Okay. They're actually quoting a passage in the Old Testament, and it's and it's about wandering, you know, not having a home. Right. Um, and the way sense. we use it in our national mythology is we think of them as kind of purposefully pilgrimage to America, creating this new, you know, society, nation, whatever. And that's exactly the opposite of what they mean the few times they say it. So I just, I've avoided the term because it seems to me to be I mean, it definitely as applied to them, it's a later coinage, but it also seems to me to be a little bit misleading of what they were about. Okay. I like that. That's good to know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So let's share your book for, again, uh, The World of Plymouth Plantation comes out October 6th. Uh, Should we send any people anywhere specific to get that? Well, it's published by Harvard University Press, Um, but, you know, it'll be all the usual 
Barnes and Noble, Amazon, all the usual places people go to buy books. So right, cool. Yeah, should be out there. And there's going to be an audio book which I've never had before. Oh, nice! Congrats. All the books I've published before, there's never been an audio book made. <laughs> okay, right on. An audio. I love audio books, so that's good to hear. Cool. Yeah. So if we ever go back to having commutes. Someone can listen to the audio book on their commute. Right. Yeah. Very so, true. Cool. Well, for yeah. people listening, I'll have a I'll have a link in the uh, description so they can click on your book and, and get that easy. But uh, this is great. I really appreciate it, Carla. Super Good. fun. Good. I'm glad. Yeah. Well, thanks for talking about it. I of course always like to talk about the things I study, so it was right. fun for me. Cool. Well, glad to hear it. So, thanks again, uh, and have a good rest of your day. Enjoy your weekend. Okay. You too. Thank you. Bye bye. Good stuff, huh? I told you. See, you learned some some new things. What you learned wasn't necessarily untrue, but we got to dive in a little deeper and really understand the story of these, God, I want to call them pilgrims, but Carla tells me not to call them pilgrims. So I'm going to try to stop. Uh, but thank you to Carla for being coming on the show and sharing all that with us. Hope you enjoyed it. Thank you to the person listening right now, talking to you. And uh, thanks for being here and listening to the episode and being to the end and, and even hanging on there now and listening to me because it doesn't really matter. But thank you for being here if you heard that. And uh, that's the episode. Hope you enjoyed it. Like I said, I'm Travis DeRose. You can email me at Travis at curiosityness.com if you have something you want to tell me. Find me on Instagram at Trav DeRose. Uh, if you know somebody who is curious or interested in the story of Plymouth and the quote pilgrims unquote coming over, then uh, maybe share this with them. Maybe they'd enjoy learning about what you just learned about. Uh, that's it. Thanks for being here. See you in episode 96.